is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Jabot. The Royal Navy sends ships to the Philippines in the aftermath of Typhoon Haiyan. Nuclear power, the UN talks to Iran. And soldier first, Olympian second, Heather Stanning talks about life in Camp Bastion. When we're here on tour, soldiers, they don't care for celebrity. They, they care about whether you can do your job or not. And uh, that was really important for me that actually I'm judged on how good I am at my job and not how good I rode last summer. Royal Navy aircraft carrier HMS Illustrious is being sent to the Philippines to help the aid operation after Typhoon Haiyan. David Cameron's tweeted that UK government aid now totals £20 million plus. Meanwhile, a team of six British military personnel who were in the Philippines for an adventure training diving course helped to rescue a baby from the path of the storm. And after it passed, they used their military experience to work alongside locals helping with the clear-up. Here's Major Dax Goderich. The locals have been exceptionally proactive and productive in, in addressing issues and challenges within the town centre. On a more local area uh, around the, um, the accommodation that we've been living in, um, we, we set priorities. When the eye of the storm crossed over, we had a small window of opportunity of about 15 to 20 minutes where we all got together as a team and discussed what would happen um, once the storm had passed and we had good daylight to move around safely. And um, basically, we, we liaise with the owner of the dive centre that we're, we, we've been conducting our adventures training with, and we agreed that clearance of routes, making the immediate area safe from deadfall, uh, trip hazards, etc., uh, was an absolute priority before people started moving around in earnest. And we spent about a day and a half um, with hacksaws, small hand tools, uh, um, machetes and axes, clearing down trees, um, clearing down broken bamboo, um, allowing people to move around the immediate um, you know, resort location safely uh, so that there were no further injuries. That was Major Dax Goderidge speaking from the Philippines, or BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee is here. Hello, Christopher. Um, interesting insight there. Is it just automatic for British military personnel to get involved in this way and know exactly what to do? They rehearse it, don't they? They exercise it quite a lot. If you think about the UK and British military, um, there's this big imperial past, isn't there? I mean, 50 countries at one time, I suppose, the beginning of the last century. Britain ruled a quarter of the globe. A quarter of the people in the world actually spoke English, almost as a first language. And the continuation of the military, who were in all those countries, the 50, 51, 52, 53 countries, has been to work with them as training operations, using the ground as for training, protecting them, keeping and sometimes putting in power the, the presidents as they became of those countries. So the connection almost anywhere in the world is somebody says, a uh, bit of a disaster, the UK says, yeah, we know that, uh, some of our guys know that place. We were only training there quite recently. And that is the connection which almost no other country, except, interestingly, the French in Africa have. Does that explain Britain's immediate response to this disaster, or fairly immediate at least? Yeah, if you look, if you look at what, for example, uh, the British public did on the first day of the appeal, £13 million went into the buckets for, this, for the appeal. That's a heck of a lot of money. If you look at what the United Nations was doing on the first day, it says we're going to assign $25 uh, million for the first part of the operation, the rescue operation. Britain was putting up $10 million. Now, that sort of shows the 
the way the British do this sort of rescue thing, they respond very, very quickly. But the military have an astonishing ability uh, through the structure of the military, whether engineers, sappers or whatever, or, as we see, let's say... Uh, one of the ships that is, uh, Daring is going there. What do you think what Daring is going to do? Um, it's like sending a city, a mobile city. It can make water, it can actually uh, uh, link up to the shore side, um, it can produce power where there is no power. Then somebody says, Look, we need you to go down the coast a bit and do it there. If you look back at them, uh, you look back, say, just the past 25 years, British warships in the, Medi in the, in the uh, Caribbean with uh, uh, hurricane uh, resources or hurricane fighting re resources have been there every single hurricane season and have worked there. Of course, the American uh, carrier USS George Washington has arrived there today. How do the Americans do disaster relief compared to the British? It's the scale, isn't it? Mm. Um, they do it on a huge scale. And what they do carry there, uh, and when the Invincible gets there, uh, yes, then she'll have she'll illustrious rather she'll have something similar and that's a lot of helicopters you need rotary wing aircraft more than anything else to be able to get in and get out uh, and supply people and bring people out you supply everything that you want the americans are on a greater scale the important thing is and this is the of any on anything on this scale is the coordination and with modern comms uh, the fact that sort of daring, uh, illustrious, or, or, or the George Washington, can they speak to each other? Do they know who is actually in charge? Do they, they know which patch of the region they're operating so in? That's, that's the thing you have to exercise. HMS illustrious will be taking over from HMS daring when it arrives. What kind of conversations will be going on between those two ships at the moment? And what will HMS daring be preparing for when she arrives? Well, the first thing you, you prepare for is actually the weather. You're going, to, you're going to a hellstorm and ship handling, you know, you know how to do it. But that's the first thing you do. So right at the beginning of the morning briefing, what's the met? That's what you need to do. Then what are the requirements? Because you're not sort of just tootling along and saying, oh, well, there's a couple of houses down there. We'd better go and, better go and fix them. This is an international effort. You will be called upon. You will be able to say to a central organization like you know, United Nations Rescue Fund or the Americans, if they're running it, but the United Nations, better still, what do you need? We are here. This is what we can uh, supply. And almost 24 hours, you've got somebody in Daring, in Illustrious, and hopefully, uh, and imaginably, in, in the George Washington, is talking to the people ashore. Now, if you've got helicopters, you can book people ashore. So you can take, some, take an expert, and you can dump him ashore, and then he gets onto the cell phone, and you say to him, what can you see? And you can fix things very quickly and you can restore electricity, you can restore roads, or you, can, or you can have stuff shifted. But you can report to everybody what you're seeing in your part of the disaster area. And this disaster area covers thousands of square miles. And, and three ships, because they are mobile, can actually provide a lot of cover uh, for other people who are doing straightforward things. So when, for example, the, the RAF uh, 99 Squadron fly in their uh, C-17... Um, they will go in as a sort of global, globe master uh, reconnaissance and, and also transporting or, uh, uh, operation. They will have already been told what's needed. People at back Bryce will be loading what's needed to go out there and in the order that's needed. No, t no point in turning up with a load of hammers unless you haven't got any nails. And so it, it, it's that sort of coordination which I don't... Th is, you know, we say, well, well, they're going to help. 
what are they going to do? That is the size of the operation. You mentioned uh, Britain's imperial past and its motivations and its, its awareness of situations like this. But um, is there any other reason purely other than, other than humanitarian motivation for Britain to want to be involved? No. Um, the, there are the suspicions that you want to do it, stop in the, in the Cold War days when you used to do this. Um, and I remember getting involved in something, and they said, well, we better do that because the Russians might. Well, Is or, Russia or China get involved at all? Have they offered any Yeah, aid? they would get involved. And they get involved, certainly in certain parts of their areas, they get involved because they're already there. You see, the, the Chinese especially are in places that, say, the British used to be for imperial reasons. They're in, pla- in place for commercial reasons. So it is coordinated, and don't forget, this is at the UN. There's a coordination through the UN, and these people sit on the permanent council of, at the UN. Nobody is left out of the loop. It's the guys on the ground. And the British have been doing this for 100 years, rescuing people. Do it. I mean, it's a terrible thing to say, because it sounds as like if the other people don't do it very well. But the British do actually do it rather better than most people. Christopher, stay with us. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, how much money did this year's poppy appeal raise? And the soldier and Olympian Heather Stanning reflects on her six-month tour in Afghanistan. BFDS Sit Rep. The deal to stop Iran making a nuclear bomb is far from done. Talks between the five permanent members of the UN Security Council, plus Germany and Iran, have ended without agreement. Iran blames France, France blames Iran, and the US is saying they're both to blame. But there are grounds for hope. Round two with the UN starts next Wednesday. Well, Mark Hibbs is a senior associate on the nuclear policy programme at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and joins us from Germany. Hello, Mark. Um, Just remind us, as to what exactly the deal between the UN and Iran was supposed to achieve? Well, Kate, this is a, a, a initial six-month deal um, to build confidence and move the process forward where at the end of a longer period, maybe 12 months, 18 months, then we have a permanent agreement which is comprehensive. Um, the initial six-month deal essentially has about four or five components to it which have been under discussion for a while. Um, At issue here right now is an agreement with Iran to suspend the enrichment of uranium to 20%, which is close to what they would need for bomb grade. Uh, It would be an agreement to dilute the 20% enriched uranium that Iran has already produced. it would suspend the production and installation of new centrifuges for gas, uh, gas is, uh, um, uh, enrichment, and it would suspend essential work on a reactor at Iraq, it's A-R-A-K, mm-hmm. which uh, could be used to make weapons-grade plutonium. That's what they want to do. Iran will agree to these things, then there will be an initial round of sanctions lifting, uh, providing Iran somewhere between $6 billion and $10 billion uh, in sanctions relief. And Mark, why do you think this deal has failed so far? Um, basically, uh, the deal hasn't failed. The, the deal is complex and it needs a structure and it needs an agreement. Um, they're they're quite close on a number of points, but the biggest uh, problem right now 
is, if you will, inside of the P5 plus 1 group about how far they have to go to accommodate Iran um, because the concern is that Iran is under pressure for an agreement, and if they don't move quickly, then Iran could uh, drop uh, the negotiation. Um, that came out in Geneva. Things are moving very fast. I think the delegates were almost overwhelmed by the speed at which this negotiation has accelerated. That was part of the problem that we had in Geneva. At the beginning of the talks in Geneva, when they went to the Swiss city on Thursday, very few people expected that there would be a deal at the end of the day on Saturday mm -hmm. or Sunday. But in fact, they came very close, and it looks as if... Uh, the negotiation, in part, might have spun out of control. Okay, and Christopher, um, the fingers being pointed at the French here—they're being sort of put as the, the bad guys, and in, in that they're being hard line, according to the reports. What are their concerns? Do, do you buy that? And, and have they got good concern to be cautious? Yeah, they have good concern. Everybody has good concern. Let me just uh, point, emphasise um, something we just heard. If you'd been six months ago talking about the possibility of being in Geneva you'd have said, no way, even though they've got a new, new new, political regime. This is going very fast, and it's going almost too fast for the internal politics as well of Iran, and that's not to be sneezed at. You know, what the, what the Grand Ayatollah, the supreme leader, has to say becomes very important. The French, in the meantime, are, are very realistic about this, and they've talked to the Israelis quite a lot, and, and you know, a lot of stuff from uh, Israeli intelligence and assessments has gone into Paris. What they're saying is that it's okay to make certain agreements, and so, for example, the suspension of 20% 20, 20 enrichment, the dilution, etc., et um, no new centrifuges, that means no new cascades, all that sort of thing is the technical side of it, which you may be able to manage, but when it you start looking at individual installations, and this is the French say, you've got to stop it. You, you mustn't go, you mustn't build anything further. And they raise these questions. The, Iran, the Iranian delegation had no authority whatsoever. So we haven't collapsed the talks, or the French haven't collapsed the talks. They've actually been the force that has said to the delegation, go back to Tehran come back with an answer but it's the speed of which the Iranians don't like working at this speed and this is what's remarkable I think about the whole thing that's going on in Geneva. Working at this speed Mark Hibbs uh, next week there is that meeting again on the 20th um, what hope is there for agreement because as we speak the US Secretary of State John Kerry is trying to stop further sanctions again against Iran and then there is the thought that that could be seen as a bargaining chip. Well there is a discussion going on um inside of the P5 plus one about the nature of the sanctions that will be and the extent of the sanctions that will be uh, lifted on Iran. Um, there's a, a fly in the ointment uh, between the U.S. and the Europeans on this point because U.S. sanctions are applied extraterritorially and the Europeans are concerned that if this isn't, isn't carefully coordinated, you'll have a, an a, unhappy situation where some sanctions will be lifted and at the same time, European firms will be penalized um, if U.S. sanctions are not lifted in tandem because the U.S. sanctions apply off offshore. So there's a number of technical points that have to be uh, carried out. Um, at the same time, the P5 plus one is going to be talking to the Iranians about uh, how much sanctions are going to be lifted on Iran. Iran wants 
quite about quite a bit. There's a discussion about whether or not finance sanctions, which are considerable, will be included in the initial package. But the other things they've got to do um, are to settle out some of these technical points. For example, if we're talking about the uh, an agreement to suspend uranium enrichment, uh, there is a technical annex uh, in the documents for the negotiators of many, many, many pages, which describes the processes and the equipment. And there would have to be a negotiation at some point between Iran mm-hmm. and the P5 plus one about what equipment has to be shut down, what has to be done, how is it going to be maintained and managed, how is it going to be verified. All of these things are going to have to be discussed. So it's it's quite complex, and it's, it's really unrealistic, um, as Christopher said, to expect that in a short period of time we're going to have an agreement. All right, Mark Hibbs, thank you very much for your time today. That was Mark Hibbs of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. This time last week, in the run-up to Remembrance Sunday, the Royal British Legion's poppy appeal was in full swing. London Poppy Day aimed to raise a million pounds in just 24 hours. So was it a successful campaign? Did they hit their targets? I'm joined now by Charles Byrne, Director of Fundraising at the Royal British Legion. Charles, good to speak to you today. How much did the poppy appeal raise this year? Yeah, okay. It went very, very well for us. Um, London Poppy Day itself, we did hit our targets. We set ourselves a million pounds, uh, which was a big step up, about 25% up on last year. And I'm really pleased to say that uh, we achieved that. So I'm um, very chuffed with that. And the Poppy Appeal itself, what was the target and how much have you raised? Yeah, 37 million is the target. We won't really know in probably until sort of early next year is the truth. Uh, <laughs> there's about 7 million in the bank and it's still coming through. And it will cont- So we're we're on track. We're Have on you track. got an idea? Uh, we're spot on track at the moment, and I don't want to tempt fate because <laughs> uh, day by day it varies, but we're spot on track to, to hit the target at the moment. And this year, how did people donate? I know you had this big online push, didn't you, as well? Did people donate in different ways? They do. More and more we're seeing that, um, and so there's still an awful lot of it is cash, which is why it takes an awful long time for it all to, to come through. But we had uh, quite a few people paying with the Barclays contactless payment. That worked well. Uh, quite a few people buying things, actually. That's probably the biggest growth area we've seen, that people are really happy to buy the poppy brooch or to buy the running T-shirts, whatever it be. So that's the, that's the big change for us. I'm just wondering, um, you say uh, donations are still coming in. When you have a disaster like we see in the Philippines, does that have an effect o- on the takings you might have? That, that's a really interesting question. We were talking about this only this morning. When I say donations coming in, we're still seeing the, the money that we've collected... It just takes us time to, to bank and process So that. it won't affect how much you, no, you no, it raise won't. overall? No, I'd, I'd, I'd have thought it would have an impact. I mean, um, if a disaster like that happens, then people's natural response is to, to focus on that. Um, so if there are other charities doing work, collecting around the same time, then I, I'd expect it to have an impact, but um, it didn't affect us. And how have you engaged with young people this year? Um, very successfully, I think. There are a number of things, one of which is our schools program sort of is always there, um, and that is, provides, I suppose, the backbone of it. Uh, it's part of the national curriculum, and we find that young children, my wife's a local primary school teacher, they're really, really interested, um, partly for family history and partly because it's something they learn about and, and the general history of our country. 
But also the Poppy Girls, I think, was a really um, have proved very, very successful for us. That was a really good move. You mentioned it's interesting what you said about your wife because just anecdotally, um, it does seem that there is an awareness, certainly from from my, comparing to my childhood, uh, about uh, the sacrifices that have been paid and the, the way it's been taught in schools has changed as well. Have you seen that? Uh, absolutely. Um, sort of behind your question is that for young people, there's no problem sort of engaging this huge interest, and whether it's because it's now on the national curriculum, but it's often people of sort of my age group or around it's or maybe it's just because they're so busy with their families and everything else but actually young people are really really interested uh, and, and want to know uh, and you know older people very much directly you know involved and family members directly involved so quite often it's the people who are stuck in the middle who might be the hardest for us to reach sometimes christopher y- your thoughts on the poppy appeal this year i think that it's not just this year um but it is um, this is a guess I don't know of any other Tim Rattling uh, day, if you like, Mm -hmm. that raises so much money that people want to put in. I mean, the the lifeboats, for example, we have a National Lifeboat Day, and you talk to those fundraisers and they say, well, actually, the tin tin stuff is is actually quite an expensive way to raise things. The other thing which I find fascinating is the, the connection with the young families. Because there's no other organisation, for example, that is appealing to the modern side of the reason for having Poppy Day. And so you have, and I've probably got the advertisement wrong, but it's Remember My Dad. Yeah, Chris, And that becomes extraordinarily sort of important. You're absolutely right, and, and, and I think spot on with that. It's, um, we really try to focus this year on armed forces families. And again, it's something personally to me... My grandfather fought on the Western Front, and that's one of the reasons. But the other is I've got friends who are serving today. And most evenings, I get home, I see my wife and children. My friend Simon in the Royal Marines, he doesn't. And and that's something we we cannot forget and shouldn't take for granted. And I think that really helped um, make the poppy appeal relevant and interesting to a wider audience this year. Yeah, Charles, but, I mean, you say being relevant. Obviously, post-Afghanistan, there is the concern about future donations. How are you preparing yourselves for that? It is a worry. You're absolutely right. Uh, and uh, as, as you pointed out before, you know, the centenary of the First World War will come along uh, and, well, it is with us, and that will help make it relevant to people. But going beyond that, there is a concern that if we drop out of people's awareness... Um, that we might not be able to raise as much money and therefore we might not be able to do as much good. What we're doing about it is trying to give as many ways for people to um, support us, become engaged with us, make us make us relevant to them, which is why focusing on the families or whatever it be, or offering um, the jewellery or fell running or even poppy beer or the work we do with Sainsbury's and Marks and Pencers, all of those are different ways and offer different opportunities for people to show their support. All right, Charles Byrne from the Royal British Legion. Uh, good luck with the counting. Thank, thank you very much okay, for your time today. Um, Christopher, um, something that's been in the papers this week is about um, three uh, air cadets who were sent home from school, according to the reports, because they were actually wearing their uniforms on Remembrance Day. Was that over the top? I think it was over the top in that school, maybe, but we don't know the circumstance. That particular school may have all sorts of... Uniform uh, difficult, rules. Yeah, all rules and difficulties. But I know of another school, for example, where uh, Boy Scouts, uh, and they decided there were about four or five Boy Scouts in the school, and they, this, is a, um, this is a comprehensive school, well-run, you know, high Ofsted reports, and the Boy Scouts were told, go home 
do not uh, wear this was your on, uniforms. This was on Monday, was it? Yeah, and these were, you know, the Boy Scouts uniform is, I mean, it's not, it's not RAF, it's not military, but they wanted somehow to sort of... Now, behind that would have been parents who said, yeah, you can go and do it. Who told them to do it in the first place? Who mm. organised them to do it? Was the local scout leader or whatever? I think these are very complex, but the most important thing is that there are not many stories like that. Christopher, stay with us. This is BFBS. Sit rep. Captain Heather Stanning has just returned from a six-month tour in Afghanistan. Last year, short saw her win gold on the rowing lake during the London 2012 Olympics. But as a captain in the Royal Artillery, 2013 has been a very different kind of year. During her time in Camp Bastion, she spoke exclusively to BFBS reporter Tim Cooper. The nicest bit about coming back to work for me was I could go back into an environment where I'd, I'd worked with the soldiers beforehand and they knew me before I'd become an Olympian so for them it was just uh, Captain Stanning's coming back to work and I mean I've moved on from that unit now and I've been working with new people in the last couple of months but um, I mean when we're here on tour soldiers they don't care for celebrity they they care about whether you can do your job or not and uh, that was really important for me that actually I'm judged on how good I am at my job and not how good I rode last summer so um, I think that's been really good for me just to keep a perspective on life and actually what else there is going on in the world. When work is done, Heather spends much of her time in the gym. We've got brilliant gym facilities here, really, for, for where we are. Um, and all I really need is a, a rowing machine, a spinning bike and some free weights, and I can do most things, so just to keep me generally fit. Uh, the bit I've missed is being on the water, and a couple of guys have joked about filling up some of these ditches with water and getting me to row up and down. <laughs> not quite the same but uh, I mean yeah I've been able to keep up with land fitness to a degree it's not it's not the same level that I was um, before but if I can go back to the UK still fit and healthy then um, I'm going to try and get back into full-time training and see if I can pick up where I left off. In terms of her sporting career Heather believes her Afghan year out from rowing won't be detrimental to her prospects. Rowing wise because uh, the Olympics is our main focus in the sport, so we, we work on a four-year cycle and you can't stay at the level we were at last year for four years. So um, the first year of the Olympiad is always going to be training is a bit lower intensity just because your body needs time to adjust. And, um, and so it's, just, it's having that kind of mental break from it, which I, I, I think I've really benefited from. Um, and also I suppose my body's had a bit of a physical break. Um, so I think people appreciate that and it's not uncommon for people to have a year out what they do with that year is different some people go and do PGCEs and teach others go to universities and coach and I've come back to work with the army and come to Afghanistan That was Captain Heather Stanning talking to our reporter Tim Cooper Now just before we go this week uh, Christopher let's have a look at uh, what else has been going on this week elsewhere and what to look forward to at Sri Lanka first of all Sri Lanka is very important it's the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting starts tomorrow, goes on for a couple of days, but the Indians not going, the Canadians not going, the Mauritians are not going. This is over human rights abuse, Human rights abu uh, abuse. The, 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 the thought is 40,000, minimum 40,000 Tamils were, were killed towards the end of that war and there's been a lot of pressure on Prime Minister Cameron not to go, but Prince Charles is going there to represent the Queen. Prime Minister had to go. And he says he will bring up the issue, doesn't he? He will bring up the issue. Uh, it won't so get anywhere. <laughs> it won't get anywhere. But the point is, uh, it was good to have the meeting. It's good Prince uh, Charles goes because it gives the opportunity to raise it because I think most people have forgotten that 40,000 people were killed under very uh, strange circumstances. The Iraq Inquiry. The Iraq Inquiry, uh, uh, Chilcot. 
Sir John Chilcott, he wants to publish 150 letters from, from Tony Blair to Bush over the Iraq war. The man who has to decide this is the Cabinet Secretary, Jeremy Hayward, most powerful man in Britain, but he was Blair's private secretary during that period. He hmm. may get fanged for it. <laughs> Palestinians, no peace. Uh, well, the Palestinian people forget, you know, Middle East, everybody talks about Syria, Egypt, etc. But the Palestinian uh, negotiations with Israel have come to a, a, a bad halt, uh, as everybody believed they would. The Palestinian negotiators have actually walked out. There's got to be movement on that. The Obama, at last, is taking an interest. Egypt. Egypt. <laughs> There's a Russian Slava-class missile cruiser, beautiful ship, come from the Pacific Fleet, because there isn't another one big enough, uh, close, and not in the Baltic Fleet or anything like that. It's arrived in Egypt. What the Russians are trying to do is get back in business with Egypt. And don't forget, uh, Egypt used to be a client state of Russia or the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Next week, the 50th anniversary of the assassination of JFK. What have you and JFK got in common? <laughs> I suppose 15, 20 years of study of the whole thing of the Kennedy administration and what went on. But, uh, you know, it's a nice hint. Saturday, BBC, Radio 4, 2.30. You can l download it. It's my second play on the assassination of, of, uh, of Kennedy on BBC. It says things that other people haven't said, and that's the importance of it. And if you want to hear what he writes as well as what he says, Air Force One is on Radio 4 on Saturday at 2.30 in the afternoon, UK time. Well, that's it for this week. My thanks to all our guests. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. And remember, you can listen again to this week's programme on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. SITREP is back at the same time next week. But for now, from me, Kate Jabot, thanks for listening and goodbye. Sport, sport and music, music for the British forces. This is BF.